Thanks, Matt. It's always encouraging when <laughs> my whole sermon is uh, dealt with beforehand in the prayers and in the Psalms and in the scripture readings. I almost feel like I don't have to preach. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really great to see that there's unity in what I'm planning to preach on today. And so far, we've gone through the Gospel of Mark and we've seen Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's told his disciples who he is, what it means to follow him. And last week, we, we looked at Jesus' teaching where he educated the crowds, or shall I say, re-educated the crowds on the meaning of marriage and the nature of the kingdom. So as we continue today, we will see Jesus teaching again the crowds, or a rich young man as well as his disciples, on what it means to follow him, what the hope is that we have, but also what the cost is in following Jesus. Today we will see that Jesus really only demands one thing of those that follow him. And so the sermon title for today is Jesus Demands One Thing. And we will look at this in three points, starting with the first point being the cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus. So follow with me in your Bibles as you have Mark 10 verse 17 up. Um, we saw and we read just now in, in verse 17 that a rich young man, or we told the young man, runs up to Jesus saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we see eagerness in this question. He genuinely wants to know. He runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is quite a strange question if you think about it. Everybody around Jesus wanted him to do something for them, whether it's the crowds wanting miracles or the Pharisees testing him with difficult questions. We see everybody wanting stuff from Jesus, yet here this man comes with the right question, really, a question relating to Jesus' mission. Jesus came to reveal the kingdom of God, and here's this young man coming, how do, how do I enter this kingdom? How do I inherit this kingdom, this inheritance? eternal life but instead of giving this man a five-step plan on how to enter the kingdom of God we see Jesus actually responding in quite some might perceive a rude way in verse 18 saying no one is good except God alone why, why do you call me good and looking at how the story progresses I think we can be safe to assume that this young man would have viewed himself as a good person we we read that he keeps the law as a young man, he's kept the law. And so in his mind and his eyes, he, it would have been a young, good man speaking to a, another good man. One good man speaking to another. And Jesus immediately bursts his bubble by drawing his eyes upward, by pointing him to God. And this is followed by a mention of six of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And in verse 20, we see that this young man has kept these from his youth. Now, surely this is good news for him, right? I mean, he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, do these things. And, and he's done them. And, you know, some of us might doubt whether this young man is sincere, whether he's actually kept this. But the text doesn't give us any implication that this young man was lying I think we should give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, <laughs> here we have a, a genuinely good Jewish man who's kept these things since his youth. He did not steal. He honored his parents. He did not bear false witness. He has done everything expected of him to be a good 
Jew to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus responds to him, look in verse 21, Jesus responds to him in love by giving him the hard truth. I think we can learn a lot from just that one sentence and I think we can preach on just one sentence there how loving others will sometimes require of us to give them the hard truth. Many times we think of loving someone is, you know, shying away from giving the hard truth. But Jesus gives him the hard truth. You lack one thing. You know, we can almost hear the thoughts of this young man. One thing? Really? I lack one thing? I've done all of these things. I need to do one more thing. This is surely good news. Right? All of the things he's done since he's a young man, he just needs to add one more thing on top of that, and he's fine. He inherits eternal life. But this young man's heart must have sunk as Jesus tells him, Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. This one thing Jesus commanded, demanded, was everything. And this is the reality of following Jesus ultimately. The one thing He demands from us is everything. Wholeheartedly following Christ is the thing that He demands of His followers. How profoundly ironic the kingdom of God is. In last week's story we read that the children who have nothing, who possess nothing, are the ones who inherit eternal life. Yet here is a man who has everything, yet he lacks the one thing which will take him to be with Christ. To the question what he must do to inherit eternal life, he needs to sell everything, and he must do it now. His adherence to the law, how good and necessary that is, cannot be a substitute for following Jesus. Unless our obedience to God's commands, as this man's obedience to God's command, leads us to following Christ, our good works are incomplete and futile. Jesus even tells this man that you will have a treasure in heaven. Jesus doesn't just tell him, sell everything and come. He he gives him a substitute. Jesus gives himself as a substitute for this man's possessions. So the choice before this man is ultimately this. Your possessions or Christ? Which will you serve? Which will you follow? And how does he respond? In verse 22, we read that he leaves sorrowful. Verse 22 is a crazy contrast to this earlier confidence that we see in this man in verse 17. He confidently says, you know, he's kept the law since he was a young man. He's confident as he comes to Christ as a good young man, yet now he leaves sorrowful. And this is true for us as well. As, as we stand on our own merits, we can be self-assured. But when the word of Christ comes to us and calls us beyond the things which we think make us good people, beyond the things which we hold on to, we realize that our good works, our good deeds, are ultimately meaningless if they don't lead us to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Something important which I think we need to notice in the story It's the fact that Jesus doesn't list all ten of the commandments. He lists six. We read the ten commandments today. The first four commandments relate to how we as humans, our relationship with God. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one says, you shall not make idols. The third one which says, we shall not have the Lord's name in vain, shall not take the Lord's name in vain. I think these things give us a clue to this man's failing. 
Sure, this man obeyed his parents, loved his neighbor, did not lie. Yet, who is this man's God? Does this man seem to have idols in his heart? Yes, I, th I think we would all agree that this man's God seems to be his possessions. He, he seems to have idols in his heart. In fact, he chooses wealth and possessions over following Christ. How is he actually doing at keeping the law of God? I'd say he's actually failing. He values treasure on earth above the one treasure from heaven, Christ incarnate. Jesus makes it clear that although this man thought of himself as being good, he did not manage to see, serve, and honor the only good, God. He failed to honor the one true good God. His good works in honoring parents and honoring neighbors, serving those around him, not coveting things, they were dirty rags as he was unable to follow Christ when Christ called him to follow him. And as Jesus teaches this young man and he leaves, we see Jesus, similar to last week, continues this teaching with his disciples as he teaches them individually. In this personal teaching, Jesus points to the power of God, showing that God is the one who makes the thing which seems impossible, possible. Which is our second point for today. God makes the impossible, possible. God makes the impossible, possible. Again, follow with me in your Bibles in verse 23. Jesus looked at his disciples and said to him, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now this statement would have amazed the disciples as we read in the text. Since in the Jewish understanding, God's blessing was possessions. If somebody had wealth, it was the providence of God. Yet Jesus is completely flipping this on its head. Repeating himself, saying, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is absolutely a ridiculous saying if you think about it. Everybody knows a camel, right? It's like a horse with two humps on its back. And an eye of a needle is really small. So, so the image is a camel going through the eye of a needle. And I think the ridiculousness of this is the point, that it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, as it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So is it only rich people who have difficulty enter God's kingdom? To be sure, yes, wealth can be and is a danger to faith. But wealth isn't categorically condemned by Jesus. In any of the Gospels, we see Joseph of Arimathea being a rich man, giving his tomb to Christ, or even the unnamed woman in Mark 14. And so we see wealthy people not being condemned for their wealth. And in this point of the story, I think it's important for us to see that wealth for this young man was a massive danger to his faith. For, wealth, for this man, wealth was the thing he could not give up to follow Christ. I think many times we read a story like this one and we say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm not, I'm not rich, so I'm not in danger of the things which Jesus warns this man about. It's easy to compare ourselves to our neighbors, especially here in Norway, where I think all of our neighbors or people close to us drive a Tesla or they have a nice hitta or a house in Spain. So we read the story and we're like, yeah, it's not applicable to me. Whenever we read biblical passages, it's very easy to reduce the demands of Christ by doing this, by saying this thing doesn't apply to me. 
But even if, if we are to think this only speaks about wealth, if you eat three meals a day and, and you have a cell phone, which I'm sure all of us have, then you're in the top 1% of the world. So yes, if you think this speaks only about wealth, then you should still listen because you're in the 1% of the world's wealthiest. But I think Jesus is pointing to something greater. We have looked at it the last few weeks that Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is showing us who he is and what it means to follow him. What it means to follow Jesus is, is to give up everything for the call of Christ. He does not ask this young man to sell a portion of his wealth or a tenth of his possessions. He said, sell everything and follow me. This young man's eternal state and his salvation was like a camel standing before the eye of a needle because of his love for possessions that was above his love for God. And this sort of idolatry can exist in many forms. It doesn't have to be wealth or possessions. Anything that we place above following Christ wholeheartedly causes our faith to be like a camel standing before the eye of a needle. If you're not convinced, follow with me in verse 26. I think the point is made even more clear that what Jesus talks about stretches beyond love for money and possessions. The disciples respond to Jesus. Then who can be saved? If this was a story only about rich people and wealth and possessions, then the disciples would have said, well, which rich person can then be saved? Yet their reply is, who can be saved? Who can be saved? The word of Christ comes to them as it did to the rich man. Not to comfort him, but to challenge him. And Jesus' word here challenges his disciples. What is the thing that they're lacking? What is the thing they're struggling to give up in following Christ? His idol was his possession, his wealth. Yet here the disciples realize that they also lack one thing or perhaps several things as they desire to follow Jesus. You can hear the hopelessness in their exclamation. Who can be saved? There's, there's hopelessness in this pronouncement. There's no hope as they ask this question. Yet there is hope. In verse 27, Jesus says, For man it is impossible. Yes, it is hopeless. But with God all things are possible. So going back to what the young man asked Jesus, What must I do to be saved? What Jesus is ultimately saying here is that man cannot do that which saves him. We cannot do the things which bring us into the kingdom of God. We cannot will to lay our idols down before the Lord. The possibility of the disciples and us truly following Jesus is almost as hopeless as the father curing his demon-possessed son in Mark 9, which we saw a few weeks earlier. And in the story, Jesus tells this father, this thing that you seek to do, driving this demon out of your son, this is impossible except with prayer. This thing is impossible, yet it's made possible through prayer to God. This is what he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Neither the father of this demon-possessed man or son, nor the disciples have it in themselves to do what Jesus asks. We do not have the power to lay our idols before the Lord. We see this in Paul when he says, In his weakness, Christ's strength is revealed. Only when we realize that we are weak, that we are unable, that we are hopeless in following Christ as we ought to, can we see the hope 
that we have in Christ? Can we see the hope that we have in God who makes that which seems impossible possible? Yes, it is hopeless to try and follow Christ on your own. Yes, it is hopeless to give up the thing which Christ demands of you. But it's possible with God. It's almost as ridiculous to think that you can do these things by yourself as it is to think that a camel can go through the eye of a needle. We need God to make that which seems impossible to us possible. So after this profound teaching, we see no one else but Peter responding. I mean, did you expect anybody else to respond to Christ after a profound teaching? So in verse 28... Follow with me. We, we see Peter telling Jesus, See, we have left everything to follow you. Now, this might seem like a brag on Peter's part. I think many times we read this and we're like, Oh, Peter with his big mouth, you know, he, he can't keep quiet. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples on things they have to give up. And here's Peter saying, you know, this is what we've done to leave you. But I do think that there's sincerity in Peter's question. I think if we read the words of Peter, and I'm going to paraphrase what he says to make it a bit easier to understand, Ultimately, what Peter is saying is that if discipleship is impossible in our own strength, what is the value of human sacrifices? So ultimately, the question behind Peter's statement is, do the things which we sacrifice in following Christ count for anything? Or are they ultimately worthless? You know, the things you stopped doing as Christians when you became Christians, the sins you stopped doing, the things you had to sacrifice, are these things ultimately worthless? Do they have value in our walk with Christ? And the answer to this question leads to our third point. Looking forward to eternal treasure. Looking forward to eternal treasure. So do the sacrifices of having left all things to follow Christ count for anything? If you look in verse 29, we see Jesus responding to Peter saying, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that everything they left for his sake, for the sake of Christ, will be rewarded to them a hundredfold in this time and in the life to come and in eternal life. I think the most difficult part of, of this statement is not the fact that Jesus tells them, you know, the, the things you left, you know, you stopped getting drunk on weekends, you, you stopped coveting expensive cars. Here we see them leaving very essential relationships, allegiances to family members, to friends, homes, families and fields. And for us it's quite easy to, to leave our former ways behind, our sinful ways behind, yet it's so difficult to leave things like family relationships or homes. This is probably the most difficult since these are things which we almost pledge allegiance to from young age. As Jesus calls us to follow Him, He requires of us to depart from everything and everyone who stands in the way of following wholeheartedly. This is a great cost. The, Jesus demands everything. 
possessions, relationships. It's really difficult. But to think of discipleship in merely everything we have to give up is similar to a guy standing at the altar with his soon-to-be wife and thinking about everything he has to give up. You can't play golf with the boys on Saturdays anymore. Oh, you know, sport. Going to have to watch less sport now that I'm married. Oh, maybe, maybe I don't like my in-laws that much. So for us to think about the cost of discipleship all the time and thinking about the sacrifices is similar to that. And for those of us that are married, we don't think about the cost we bear. We think about that which we gain in marriage. And that is what Jesus is telling us here. Jesus tells us what we will gain by following him. He promises us a hundred times as much of the things we give up. The disciples are said to have given up homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields in following Christ. This is great. This is a great cost. This is a lot of sacrifice. Yet we're told nothing compares to the returns that they will receive in the community of faith now and in the life to come. It's the same for us today. You know, the relationships that are severed as a result of following Christ, the the idols we lay down because we want to follow Christ, the things which we have sacrificed in our walk with Christ, Jesus tells us that we will be given a hundred times in this life and in the life to come. And I mean, I've seen this in my life, as I'm sure many of you have as well. I lost almost all of my friends when I became a Christian. They were a stumbling block as I sought to follow Christ. Yet, I've got so much more now in our community of believers than I have back then. My girlfriend broke up with me when I became a Christian, yet God gave me a wife. Surely better than just a girlfriend. I had to stop seeking my own pleasures in dark corners of Cape Town. And now I'm in Norway, I'm in one of the most beautiful countries in the world. So my personal life, and as I'm sure many of you can say that, I've had to sacrifice a lot of things to follow Christ. Yet I've seen all of these sacrifices bear a hundredfold return in the community of faith. And this is what Christ means when He tells us that we will receive a hundredfold in this life. We give up family to become part of the family of God. We might have to give up parents in order to become part of God's children. We might give up fields to become part of the greater missional field of Christ. And perhaps you do not see these things in this life. We're promised that our ultimate reward the ultimate thing we look forward to as disciples who sacrifice everything is hope of eternal life with Christ, is an eternal inheritance. We also see that persecutions will follow these blessings. Now, I could have stopped before this, as many Christian preachers do, but our Christian existence is not some form of utopia or you know, so the Christian faith is not an insurance policy against hardships or adversity, as I'm sure many of us can attest to. So while we receive great blessings and great benefits of being Christians, we're still ridiculed by society. I'm sure the people sitting in the room next door think those people singing psalms are really weird. Yet we have an eternal hope. We have an inheritance where moth, Rust, dust cannot destroy it. And that is our hope. 
And Jesus ends his teaching by telling his disciples that many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Again, we see this great irony of the gospel. It takes the things which we cannot imagine giving up for following Christ and it gives us things which we can never imagine beyond our wildest dreams. It takes from those who stand on their riches and gives them Christ. Those who give up everything, not only their possessions, sometimes even their own lives, to follow Christ, will not only be compensated a hundredfold in this life, but they will be given eternal life in the world to come. So as we draw near to a close this morning, the important question being asked is, what is the thing that you would struggle the most to give up if Christ was to ask you today? I was confronted with this question this whole week. It's been a really difficult sermon prep. It's a very confronting passage. And we can really be hypocrites about this. I I recently read a book by, by the Puritan John Owen where he speaks about this, where he says that we are really good at idolizing certain things and then using Christian things or good things to justify our idolatry of this. And an example of this would be Jesus calls us as his followers to meet on a Sunday, to meet as a community of faith. Many times people go and enjoy the presence of God in nature, justifying the fact that they're not at church by, well, we can enjoy Christ outside of the walls of a church. Or perhaps God calls us to pray and read His Word together during the week. But our children have football practice, or our children have some sort of sport thing to do. We're being good parents, though. God is calling us to be good parents. So we're justifying the fact that we're not following Christ wholeheartedly by doing Christian things. Speaking on this, Owen says, It's sad to see some Christians who faithfully keep up spiritual duties in the church and in their families and keep themselves from the obvious sins of the world. Yet when they are tested by the Lord to deny certain worldly excesses, they are far from actually setting their minds on Christ. What are the things preventing you from following Christ as you ought to? The things you would really struggle to lay down before Christ. Now this is not meant to condemn you. This is truly in the heart in which Christ spoke to the rich man in love. Our hearts should not desire to hold on to anything above Christ. Perhaps you struggle with this. And that's a good thing. Since it's not only a struggle to give these things up, it's an impossibility. To us, at least, with God, this thing is is possible. It's not impossible with God. We don't stop desiring these things by willing it. We, We stop desiring these things with the help of God. Christ calls his followers to follow him. Fishermen leave nets, tax collectors leave their tax booths, rich man will leave his riches. The call to follow Jesus is not an additional obligation to life. And I see so many Christians do this. The call to follow Christ is to leave everything. Discipleship replaces, subordinates or even judges all other obligations that we might have in this life. When Christ calls us to follow Him, anything that stands in the way of following Christ is a hazard to our life as Christians. 
We read Deuteronomy 4 this morning. Our God is a jealous God. He will not be worshipped alongside idols. Our God is a consuming fire. And I believe that our discipleship should reflect the nature of God. It should be all-consuming. If we add Christ onto whatever we're doing already, Christ really isn't anything to you. Since He demands one thing. He demands to be everything. Church, it's worth it though. Following Christ wholeheartedly, giving up everything to follow Him, is worth it. We're promised that we will receive a hundred times in this life. And if you don't see it in this life, our hope of eternal life is promised to us if we manage to follow Christ like this. Do we believe this? Will we follow Christ like this? Let's pray.